This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Well, hello. I am going to talk about knowing the unknown God. So just think about everything you don't know about God. There you go. No. <laughs> it's kind of a weird, contradictory thing, but where does that come from? It comes from Scripture. When we look at Scripture, it seems like we get these contradictions coming at us from sacred Scripture. On the one hand, Scripture keeps saying that we can't see God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, God dwells in unapproachable light, and no one has ever seen or can see God. And again, in the Gospel of John, right at the beginning, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. But then again, the Bible, at the same time, you go to John's first letter that he wrote, he says, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And again, the Gospel of John began with no one has ever seen God, but at the end, this is eternal life, that they know thee, the only true God. And everybody remembers the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. <clears throat> so how do we reconcile these two things? What's going on here? On one hand, it seems like we can't see God, but on the other hand, it seems like we will see God at some point. So St. Thomas, this is how he approaches it. This is his commentary on Romans. <clears throat> Since the creation of the world, the invisible things of God have been understood through his works, right? This is echoing St. Paul. We should understand, however, that in this life, something about God remains completely unknown namely what he is. So in this life, God remains completely unknown. But the invisible things of God have been understood through his works. So there's this tension going on. The reason for this, he says, is that human knowledge finds its starting point in realities that are connatural to us. We're bodily creatures. So everything we know comes through our senses, through physical things but they're not suited to representing God because God is not a bodily creature. So bodily things we experience can't represent God. But nevertheless, as Dionysius says in the divine names, it is possible to know God from his creatures in a triplex way. So three ways of knowing God through our experience of creatures and material things. Now, <clears throat> little side note here about Dionysius. If you try and look up Dionysius these days in the divine names, it'll always say pseudo-Dionysius, right? Because scholars have researched and found that although he said he was Dionysius the Areopagite, the convert of St. Paul that we read about in Acts, right? He couldn't have been because he wrote hundreds of years later after this. So what's going on? We got to call him pseudo-Dionysius. I don't like calling him pseudo-Dionysius. <laughs> he called himself Dionysius the Areopagite. And he clearly wasn't trying to pretend to be the convert of St. Paul because he's referencing all these early Greek philosophers like Plotinus and um, all these other Proclus. There's all these references. I think it's somebody else who centuries later was just named Dionysius again and he grew up near the Areopagus. So that's what he called himself. <laughs> I think it's kind of, I don't know. I think it's obnoxious to always call him pseudo Dionysius. He wasn't trying to pretend to be the convert of St. Paul. Anyway, so what is this three, the three ways we can come to an understand and knowledge of God 
given the fact that we're limited to bodily experiences in this life. The first one is through causality, and this is the way of affirmation. I'll go into these a little bit more on the next slides, but I just wanted to give them all to you up front. The second is by way of eminence or excellence. And then the third is the way of negation or emotion. And this talk, knowing the unknown God, is going to focus mostly on the third way. But I wanted to give you a sense of all three up front. So first, the way of causality, way of affirmation. So St. Thomas says, the first is through causality. Given that creatures are defective and changing, it's necessary to lead them back to an unchangeable and perfect principle. In this path, we touch upon the existence of God. So that's looking at bodily things, temporal things, things that pass away. And you look at the good in them and recognize there must be a cause of that good outside themselves. And that gives us a glimpse, kind of an arrow pointing towards God, right? So God is the cause of everything good that we see. That's kind of an oversimplification of this, but that gives you, gives you the basis of it. <clears throat> okay, now the second is the way of excellence. Creatures are not led back to the first principle as to their proper and univocal cause, right? But to a transcendent and universal cause. So the the shift here is from saying there must be a cause of this good to saying the cause can't be univocal. It can't be the exact same thing as this good, right? It must be a transcendent cause. It must be different than what it's causing. It can't be identical because it's not bodily, because it's not passing away, right? There's a fundamental difference, and that's what this way of excellence, way of eminence is saying. You recognize first the cause, that God is the cause, but then you recognize the second step, the as it exists in God, must be greater, more excellent than the way it exists in the creatures. Yeah? And St. Thomas says a little bit more about this in the Summa. Whenever you see this little ST abbreviation, that's talking about his Summa Theologiae, right? His major theological work, and then the little reference to it. But he says, it does not follow that it belongs to God to be good because he is the cause of goodness, right? So the first way, that's kind of how it's looking at it. But this takes it a step further and recognizes that it's actually the reverse. The truth of the situation is actually the reverse. <clears throat> because he is good, he pours out goodness into things. So his goodness is excellent, eminent, super abundant in a way that goes beyond any of the things he has caused, right? So you can't say God is good because he is the cause of goodness. Rather, he is good and pours out that goodness on everything else. It's, it's shifting your perspective of how you're looking at the situation. Instead of being down here in bodily things and looking up and saying, oh, God is the cause of this, you're saying, no, God from above, this cause is greater than anything down here. And he's overflowing, the goodness is overflowing from him. Okay, <clears throat> now the third way, negation or emotion, the mystical. <laughs> you gotta be kind of careful with this, but the rest of the talk is gonna be about this aspect of it to hopefully make it clear for you. The third way is the way of negation. If God is a transcendent cause, 
nothing of that which we find in creatures can be attributed to it. That is why we say of God that he is infinite, right? He's not finite. He's not limited. We say he's unchanging because we experience change and we know that's not God and so forth. So this, this can lead to really strange things. We have, <laughs> every family has that crazy uncle that nobody likes to talk about. And us Dominicans, we have crazy Uncle Eckhart. <laughs> Meister Eckhart is our crazy uncle who came right after St. Thomas. So when St. Thomas was at the height of his powers, Little Eckert was like a young little teenager, or just a little kid. He's like, I'm going to be a great theologian someday. And he wrote some really wild things, ended up being condemned for all these different propositions, like 21 of them. And they looked at him and said, well, 11 of them are actually bad, but the other just could be bad if you're not thinking about it right. And then he wrote a reply to it. And it's anyway, it comes. I wanted to talk a little bit more about crazy Uncle Eckhart here. But I just want to say that this way of negation, negative theology, can lead to weird phrases like God is not good, God does not exist. Because if you're thinking in this mode of theology, you're thinking God is not good the way we have ever experienced good in life because it's so much beyond that. God does not exist in the way any of the things we have experienced existence is because his existence is so super abundant and beyond anything we've experienced. <laughs> and so you get crazy people like Meister Eckhart, who has a lot of fruitful spiritual insights that do resonate with a lot of people. But you got to be careful. And so the rest of this presentation is going to be about this and how it takes a very precise intellectual process in order not to fall off the wagon into heresy. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about knowledge of God. Let's take a step back, talk about knowledge of God in general first. SCG, whenever you see SCG, that's St. Thomas's Summa Contra Gentiles. That's his other major work. Came before the Summa, but it's a big work and it's a little bit more expanded. The Summa Theologiae, He's trying to be very precise and brief. In the Summa Contra Gentiles, his earlier work, sometimes you get a bigger expanded argument for some of the same arguments in the Summa. So in the Summa Contra Gentiles, Thomas goes back and quotes three texts from Aristotle in three different things. First, the Nicomachean Ethics, which is a great book we were talking about at lunch. Aristotle says, man should draw himself towards what is immortal and divine as much as he can. And then in his biological work on animals, although what we know of the higher substances is very little, yet that little is loved and desired more than all the knowledge that we have about less noble substances. And then in Aristotle's work on the heavens and the earth, when questions about the heavenly bodies can be given even a modest and merely plausible solution, he who hears this experiences intense joy. I mean, you can even see this today when people, oh, the first model of the black hole, it's so amazing. You got to go watch Interstellar. It's this incredible picture of the black hole, right? And it's so remote, but it gives people great, well, most people great joy. There's some of us who don't care about what's going on up there, but most of us it gives great joy to. <laughs> and so St. Thomas connects all three of these things into the statement that 
Our knowledge of God, therefore, to be able to see something of the loftiest realities, however thin and weak the sight may be, is a cause of the greatest joy, right? So our knowledge of God will be weak and imperfect in this life. It's not like knowing math or geometry or something that we know completely. It is weak and it's imperfect, but it is nevertheless the most noble knowledge that we can acquire and the source of the greatest joys in this life. Okay. So what about this way of negation? St. Thomas, since we know God imperfectly, thus we also name him imperfectly, as if stuttering, says St. Gregory. God, it... God exists. God is essence, right? God is his own essence, but God does not exist in the way we experience things existing. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it does sometimes sound as if we're studying, stuttering because we know him so imperfectly in this life. And he says, God is known as unknown. <laughs> I really like, this is a great if you want to dive deeper into anything I'm saying today, St. Thomas Aquinas, Spiritual Master, it's got some really great things in it. It dives a lot deeper into many of these things. Pick it up. But I really, really appreciate what the author of this book says about this way of negation. He says, negative theology is the intellectual form of our respect and adoration when we're confronted with God's mystery, Right? So this, in a way, is the mode of humility. It's us recognizing that God is so beyond anything that we know or have experienced that it keeps us intellectually humble and in a perspective of adoration of God. I think it's really, really good to keep in mind as we go forward. <clears throat> and another amazing thing about him is he translates things of Thomas that have never been translated into English, like some of his sermons he quotes and references. And I really like this. This is a little snippet from one of St. Thomas's sermons. So he's preaching it to people. It's not as esoteric as some of his theology works. And he's talking about the way of negation here. St. Thomas in his sermon says, no path is as fruitful for the knowledge of God as that which proceeds by separation. We know that God is perfectly known when we become aware that he is still beyond everything that we can still think about it. <laughs> that is why it is said of Moses, who was as intimate with God as we can be in this life, that he approached God in the cloud and in darkness, which is to say that he came to the knowledge of God by learning what God is not. It is this way of separation that indicates what the name holy means. <laughs> That's like the boom, mic drop moment, right? Because holy, what does holy mean? Holy means separated, right? So God is separated. The holy of holies is separated from the rest of the temple. Holiness inherent in it is this separation, this difference. And St. Thomas is saying this way of negation by cutting away the extraneous things from our knowledge about what we're thinking about God, that's, that's increasing his holiness, that's why this is the way of adoration. This is kind of a mystical approach to God. Okay. <clears throat> so in the study of the divine substance, the negative path, St. Thomas says, is required above all else. The divine substance surpasses in its immensity all the forms that our intellect can hold. 
So anything in our mind, God surpasses it. And thus we cannot know God by knowing what it is. We can, however, get a kind of knowledge about it in understanding what it is not. And we will draw near to that knowledge as we can discard, through our understanding, more things from God. <clears throat> it's really, really important to always remember that negative theology is not a theology of negation. You're not just being a pessimist all the time. Rather, you have to be very precise in how you move forward and slice off what does not fit when we're thinking about God. That's why we draw near to that knowledge when we discard through our understanding, right? So you have to understand why you are discarding everything you're discarding. Because if you don't have that understanding of what you're discarding, then you're a heretic. <laughs> so it's really important. Okay. The same quote continues. If we affirm, for example, that God is not an accident, he's talking about accident in the sense of Aristotle's like qualities of a person, like this is white, it's an accident, okay? If we say that God is not an accident, we distinguish him in that negation from all accidents. If we add further that he is not a body, we distinguish him from a certain number of substances that are bodily, like all the things around us in this room. And thus progressively, thanks to negations of this kind, we distinguish him from everything that is not him. There will be a proper consideration of the divine substance when God will be known as distinct from everything. But there will be no perfect knowledge of him, for we remain ignorant of what he is in himself. Right? We can never comprehend God. Okay, now, now I want to give you an example. What does this actually look like when St. Thomas is doing it? This is gonna be way oversimplified, okay? <laughs> but I just wanna give you a very clear example of what it means to cut things off in order to approach an understanding of God through negation. So the Summa Contra Gentiles, which was his earlier work before the Summa, this is the path he takes. He starts with a quote from Malachi. I am God, I do not change. And so he begins by saying, God does not change. And since God doesn't change, we can negate potency from him because potency is the power to change. So God doesn't have potency. Therefore, God is eternal. Since God is eternal, we can negate matter from him because matter passes away, it's temporal, right? Therefore, God is pure act. But since God is pure act, we can negate composition from him because if there's, no, if there's not potency in act, then there can't be a composition by negating composition, we can conclude God is simple. And since God is simple, we can negate essence, therefore God is being. There can't be a composition of being and existence. He just is existence. <clears throat> so that is really oversimplified, <laughs> but I just wanted to give you a sense of it. Now I wanna give you another example from the Summa, which you're a little bit more familiar with. After Father Ephraim's talk yesterday on question two of the Summa, Question three is about God's simplicity, and this is a great example of St. Thomas proceeding by way of negation. <clears throat> he just says, 
Each article, is God a body? No. Is he composed of matter and form? No. Is he the same as his nature? No. Is there essence in existence? No. Is God in a genus? No. Are there accidents in God? No. Therefore, is God simple? Yes. <laughs> so you just see how he's negating all these things in order to arrive at a truth about God, that he's simple. You see that? Now, these articles are giant, right? I mean, there's a lot of arguments going on in there in order to understand this. But I just wanted to kind of excise the negation part of it so you can see how he's sculpting his way to this truth that God is simple, okay? And then he moves on from here. So this is just question three. Pull out microscope-wise and start looking not just at articles, but look at the questions at the beginning of the Summa. Question three, God is simple. Since God is simple, we can negate potency, and therefore, in the next two questions, God is perfect and good. And since God is perfect, we can negate the finite from God. Therefore, the next two questions, God is infinite and omnipresent everywhere. Since God is infinite, we can negate change. Therefore, God is immutable and eternal in the next two questions. And since God is immutable, we can negate division, and therefore God is one in question 11. So you can see how the Summa is progressing <clears throat> by means of this way of negation, very precisely cutting things away from our idea of God in order to begin to approach that inapproachable light. That makes sense? Okay. <clears throat> Now, a really, really, really important thing at the foundation of all this, though, a big but, is that negation is founded upon a prior affirmation. It has to be. <clears throat> and St. Thomas, uh, this is his book, De Potentia, question seven, article five. He says, the meaning of the negation itself is founded upon a certain affirmation. That is why, if the human intellect could not know anything about God affirmatively, it would not be able to deny anything about him either. Because if nothing the intellect tells us about God is affirmatively true, it would possess no knowledge of him. <clears throat> so that is why, following Dionysius, we must state that these names signify the divine substance, although in a defective and imperfect way. The knowledge that we have of God is true, but it's not a positive knowledge, okay? <clears throat> and that's important to keep in mind, right? It's, it's defective and it's imperfect knowledge, but it's truth. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> Things do change a little bit once we're not on this earth anymore. <laughs> I'm not going to go too much into what heaven's like, but I want to give just a little glimpse and mention it briefly. So in Thomas's work, De Veritate, he says, Here on earth, we know only that God lies beyond what is presented about him to the intellect, and that what is presented follows from what has remained hidden. And there lies the highest mode of our knowing here below, right? This way of negation is the highest mode of our knowing about God here below when we're very precise with our negations. This is why we do not see God, see of God what he is, but only what he is not. Now in heaven, the amazing thing is we're united with God. <laughs> and so the Holy Spirit, in a sense, 
enters into us in such an intimate way that it kind of performs the work of our potential intellect so that we can experience God. It's, it's being united to God because we're part of the Trinity and the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us that the Holy Spirit can see God through us. So it's, it's kind of, anyway, the divine essence, St. Thomas says, makes itself sufficiently present in itself. The Holy Spirit makes itself sufficiently present in us. That is why when God himself will be the form of the intellect, so the Holy Spirit is the form of our intellect in heaven, we can see not only what he is not, but also what he is. <clears throat> okay. Now let's recap. Summary in St. Thomas. Sometimes you're reading St. Thomas, he sounds very positive, very affirming, right? And that's what this first quote is. <clears throat> Therefore, we can know God's relationship to his creatures, namely that he is the cause of all. This was the first, right, of the three ways that we started this, this talk with. Second, we know what differentiates him from these creatures, which is to say that he is himself nothing of that which he is the cause. This was the second way, the way of eminence, the way of excellence. He is the cause of good, but he is good in a way that is beyond the good in creatures. Finally, we know that whatever we discard in thinking of him, we discard to indicate not some lack, but rather excess. And that's the third way, the way of negation. <clears throat> but then you'll be reading St. Thomas <laughs> and you'll come across a passage that you have to read in light of this first one because it sounds so negative. So because when he's emphasizing this negation aspect, he says things like in this quote, <clears throat> we can say that at the end of our argument, we know God is unknown <laughs> because the mind discovers that it has reached the highest point of its knowledge when it knows that the divine essence is above everything it may grasp in our present state of life. And although what God is remains unknown, it knows nonetheless that he is. Right, so this is St. Thomas when he's in his most extreme negative theology perspective. <clears throat> we only know God is unknown. The only thing we know is that he is. Like, why did you write all this stuff then? <clears throat> and that's what we have to be careful about. Because negative theology is not a theology of negation. A theology of negation would be, oh, who cares everything what Thomas wrote? It doesn't really matter because at the end, the only thing we know is the stuff we don't know. The only thing we know is God is unknown. The only thing we know is that he is. We don't know anything about him. So why read this giant work? You know, that would be a theology of negation. That's what, not what negative theology is. Negative theology is being very precise. You have to resist the temptation to just throw it all away as worthless and not worth your time to study. And I want to conclude with <clears throat> everybody has heard that St. Thomas, at the end of his life, on the Feast of St. Nicholas, had a mystical experience of God, and he didn't write anything else. He just quit writing the Summa in the middle of a treatment on penance and the sacraments. And he just said, everything I've written is straw compared to what I have seen, right? Well, why read it then? You know, that's the temptation. Well, I, being a farmer that grew up in Montana, 
and dealt with straw all the time, really, really love his analogy that everything he wrote seems as straw. So I want to talk a little bit about that at the conclusion. Because the temptation, if you're dealing with knowing the unknown God, thinking, oh, it doesn't really matter. St. Thomas himself thought it was all straw. No. <laughs> the origin of this story, first of all, I want to I clarify, is Thomas's canonization process. So it's pretty proximate to when he actually lived. Most likely, it's pretty true. <clears throat> it's only removed a few people, right? Bartholomew was the one who was at the canonization process and reported it. He said he heard it from Brother John, who heard it from Reginald, whom Thomas told. So it's only four removed, that's not too far. And it's not that complicated of a saying, right? All my writing seems straw. And if he wasn't writing at the end of his day, everybody's probably like, why isn't Thomas writing? He says everything's straw. Probably went through the priory like things go through the priory today. Most likely he did say this. But straw is the byproduct of a grain harvest, right? And you have to remember what St. Thomas says. God is truly the subject of this science. Father Ephraim yesterday talked a little bit about what St. Thomas's project is in the Summa. And the subject of the Summa is God, right? It's like the grain in the wheat that you're trying to get to. <clears throat> and St. Thomas also reminds us that Believing doesn't reach completion in formulas. It's not in what he wrote. It's not the formulas that is the completion of our belief, but in the reality of God himself, right? That's the grain that we're trying to harvest. And in a sense, the summa is the straw by which we're trying to reach God. You know, he is the subject of the science. He is the reality that we believe in. Thus, I think... Thomas's final analogy is perfect. All his written work was the byproduct of his grain harvest search for God. <clears throat> now let's talk about straw. <clears throat> so straw, straw is not feed and everybody gets this confused. Straw and hay are two different things. Hay is feed, straw is not. St. Thomas said all his work was straw because we have to remember that God is the goal, not the formulas. Thomas's work is not the goal. God is the goal. So his, his work is the straw, not the feed. It's not hay. Now, what is straw good for? Straw is excellent for crushing weeds. Like when you need to get rid of weeds in your garden, straw is a great way to do it, just like the works of St. Thomas are excellent for crushing heresy and mistakes that people make. You heard it again, Father Ephraim's talk yesterday, right? The two objections to does God exist sound exactly like what people are saying today. You can still go to St. Thomas, you can still find fruitful straw that will help crush the heresies of today. <laughs> Second thing, straw is also excellent bedding. The phrase, time to hit the straw, it should be time to hit the straw, not the hay. Hit the hay doesn't make any sense because it's filled with seed and seed. If you're, if you're just, the seeds get in all the wrong places. It's so uncomfortable if you try to sleep on it. Straw makes great bedding. <clears throat> and that, the, the summa, you gotta sleep on it. You gotta meditate on it. You gotta immerse yourself in the works of St. Thomas because it's straw, it makes a great place to rest your head. 
when you're thinking about God. The third thing straw is useful for is this mulch. When you put straw over the ground, it really helps avoid dry soil. It keeps the moisture in. And returning to the works of St. Thomas helps us avoid a spiritual dryness. It helps keep the moisture in our soul of the things we recognize, of the things we see, of the glimpses we get of God in this life. So straw is also useful as mulch. Straw is also useful for weaving. You can make hats, you can make baskets, you can make mats, you can make so many things, and you can weave St. Thomas into so many homilies, so many presentations. There's so much wisdom in St. Thomas that you can bring to whatever truth you're trying to share with people. Straw is so useful for weaving. Straw also prevents erosion when you're seeding. So when you're trying to seed a new area, if you want to prevent the seeds from being blown away, you just lay down some straw first, right? This brings the parable of the fruitful sower to mind in the Gospels, right? How they're throwing seed in all these different places. If you have the straw of St. Thomas as work, it gives the seeds a great place to sprout and to grow. It holds the seeds in place, prevents erosion from those seeds disappearing because they get implanted with a knowledge and with a clarity and with a certainty that you wouldn't get if you didn't have St. Thomas as the straw preventing that erosion. And straw is also useful for keeping strawberries out of the dirt. <laughs> I remember growing up and going to my grandma and grandpa's house, they had this huge batch of strawberries and they always had me go out there and pick them, but they always had straw around the strawberries. Strawberries are these little plants that come up from the ground and they sprout and then the berries, like if you don't have the straw around them, you gotta water them and then the berries just plop in the mud and the berries get all muddy and they're gross. But if you have straw, if you have the work of St. Thomas, it keeps your spiritual insights clean and precise and you just wanna eat them all the more. <laughs> and that's what the theology of St. Thomas does. Yes, it's straw, it's not the grain, it's not the God, it's not the subject of the science, it's not the reality we're aiming at, but it's so helpful. Straw is also an excellent natural insulator. <clears throat> like my great-grandparents, when they were moving to Montana, they needed insulation in their house because it's so freaking cold. <laughs> 80 below, I remember when I was in third grade growing up, and 60 below is not uncommon either. But if you insulate your house well enough with straw, it keeps the cool in the house in the hot summers when it gets 100 sometimes, but it also keeps the warm in in the winter. And that's also what the works of St. Thomas do. It prevents us from extremism because he's got such a healthy balance. The straw of all his works keeps us rational <laughs> and not extreme, just like straw does with insulation in a house. And third, I mean eighth, another really useful thing about straw is it composts over time <laughs> and it turns into this amazing, amazing manure, like it helps plants grow, but it takes a really long time for straw to turn into compost. Father Norris Clark was a Thomist, spent a lot of his life studying St. Thomas. 
And one of his quotes that he would tell all his classes when he was teaching is to tell the students, it takes about 10 years of steady living within the system of St. Thomas to be able to dominate it enough to see it as a whole and move freely within it. That's a big investment. <laughs> That's a lot of time. But to reach that point, that's how long it takes straw sometimes to compost completely down. St. Thomas was a genius. I mean, he's the universal doctor of the church, right? There's so much wisdom in him that you can spend your life studying him, even though it's a pile of straw and it'll still be worth it. And there will still be so much fruit that comes from it. So that's kind of short, but that's what I have for this talk. If anybody has any questions, we can try to answer them. We have about 15 minutes for questions. Yeah. So for New Year's, thank you for the talk. That was awesome. Um, well, you were saying that like we don't have positive knowledge of God, but isn't that what we have when we say things like God is just, God is good? Isn't that a, if it's by way of an affirmation, isn't it therefore positive? Yes. It, well, okay. <clears throat> it's, let me get this quote here. Okay, right here. Yes, these new names that you just signified like just do signify the divine substance but it's in a defective and imperfect way. Because even when we say that, we have to recognize that God's goodness is completely above and better and beyond anything we've ever experienced or that has ever been in our mind. So our knowledge isn't positive in that sense. You understand what I'm saying? Like two plus two is four. That's a positive knowledge because it's like comprehensive and Whereas when we say these positive names, although they do signify the divine substance, it's defective. It's always defective. It's a little bit imperfect because we have to recognize that it's always beyond anything that we say. Okay. So I'm thinking of, a, there's a, it's a Buddhist saying? It's like some, someone said this where it's like, well, our, when we speak of the divine, it's kind of just like pointing. No one confuses the moon for the finger. Something like that? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, yeah. Like, we started with those three ways, right? Because, like, you can have certain words that, in a positive sense, I am pointing at God when I say he is just. Mm -hmm. But I'm not comprehending him. Yeah. Like, I guess I can say I can point to, you know, two plus two is four, and I can comprehend that. That's like, yeah, that's positive and positive. This is positive and negative. <laughs> hey, it's kind of, yeah. Like pointing at the moon is kind of like the way of causality, right? God, good, therefore he must be the cause, but we can point at him through the good things we experience. Yeah, um, I guess when I say our knowledge of God is true, but it's not positive knowledge, I'm using positive in the sense of comprehensive, like complete, is what I, why I, was, why I said it that way. Okay. Okay. Question in the back. Okay. So St. Thomas has the, um, the, the vision near the end of his life um, of this direct experience of God. Where does that uh, fall in the categories of the triplexes of the Oh. <laughs> I, <clears throat> I would say that falls outside it. 
Um, there's, I'll bring this up. This comes into my next talk, God's knowledge and, and our knowledge that it will be this afternoon. <clears throat> St. Thomas has this point where he talks about, he says there seems to be three ways we can experience God. And he's like this way and this way and this way. And then he's like, but then there's this fourth way. <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, St. Thomas, you're like St. Catherine of Siena. There's three ways, but four ways, but it's actually two and a half ways. Like, why are you doing this? You almost never do this, St. Thomas, say there's three ways. And then like, oh, there's a fourth I forgot about. And that fourth way he talks about, which I'll bring up in my slides this afternoon, is this divine revelation type experience of God, um, which kind of falls out of the three ways I'm talking about. These three ways are really, all three of them really take precise intellectual, it's using the image of God in us, our reason, in order to approach him, right? Whereas I think Thomas's experience at the end of his life, whatever it was, it was definitely mystical. It was definitely beyond the way of negation, which was what he was doing all the time in his writing, right? And he's like, oh. so I think it was something else outside of that category, those three categories. Maybe not, but, yeah? Um, so you mentioned that uh, through like, the way of negation, he concludes that there's no potency in God. So does that mean that God is required by his nature to act? And then so like, how can he rest? Like he talks about in Genesis, he rests on the seventh day. Like how does that work if he always has to be active? And that seems to like, I don't know, that seems like put a binding on him is that he has to, um, have this super abundant overflow of goodness into the world because he has to act. Yeah, it, the important thing there is to recognize the necessity that you're injecting into God that's not really there. <clears throat> because when we say God is pure act, he is pure love, He's pure good. It's not like, yeah. Oh, how to answer this? <laughs> our part of what makes it difficult is our experience of activity and potential is our experience in this temporal world, right? And so when we hear how God rested on the seventh day, we imagine working really hard 80 hours and six days and then want to rest on that last day to recharge. But when we say there's no potency in God, that God is unchanging, it's because he is the ultimate, right? Like he is loving all the time. We wouldn't want God's love to change. And some days he doesn't love us and some days he does love us because his love is absolutely faithful and unchanging. We don't say that God is active and that he needs to rest in the way we do um, because he's not um, temporal. He's, he doesn't have like fallen matter in him. He doesn't have the potential of matter. I don't know if I'm answering your question well at all. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm wondering is he, if he is act itself, how can we say that he's like freely creating like how how do we keep from saying like oh he is act so he has to have this super abundant overflow of goodness into the world hmm. yeah that's that's a big question like 
some of the early Neoplatonic philosophers like Plotinus did say that the overflow was necessary and that's how they understood like the ultimate being. But for St. Thomas, God is free and he freely creates because he has revealed through the gospels and through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross that God is love and love is free. <clears throat> so when we think about it very precisely like the Neoplatonic philosophers did, we can reach the conclusion that by necessity, God does overflow and that seems to negate the freedom. I think it's through revelation that we know through Jesus Christ and through the church and the Holy Spirit guiding us that it is a freely created gift and that God freely created the universe. I mean, the ancient philosophers, right? They're like, Father Ephraim mentioned this yesterday. He's like, whether the universe has been here forever or not, right? We can still reason from it, but it's through revelation that we know God created the universe and that it's through a free act of love. Anyway, that's what I got right now. <laughs> Any other questions? Okay, thank you.